0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons— Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: Thank you, Ashley, for reading that passage for us this morning. A lot going on in there. We're going to unpack it in just a minute. But to get started, I wanted to uh, circle back to something, and that is uh, one of our key values as a church uh, is that we would be a people, that the people who call Christ Presbyterian Church home would be people who would spend time with Jesus every day in scripture and prayer. That it's a value that we have for our congregation. We don't believe that this value is something that is unique uh, and sparkles in a special light for Christ's prayers, but that this is something that God calls his people to do, right? To be people who are engaged. And so one of our values as a vision for our church is that anyone who calls this church home would spend time with Jesus in scripture and prayer every single today, day. And today's passage is an excellent example of why That matters, because if you are unfamiliar with the Old Testament, what Ashley just read is meaningless, right? It is a deep dive, and uh, so I wanted to actually open by talking a little bit, um, if I may, about what it's like to be a preacher, Uh, what it's like to do this part of the, the job that I do. So every week... I sit down with a passage of scripture. I know usually uh, six to nine months in advance what's coming up. And I will sit down on, uh, usually the week of is when I will do most of the work on a passage. And I'll sit down with a passage of scripture and I will study it. And here's the approach. The first thing I try to do is I try to understand it. Uh, I try to understand the passage itself. So I start with just the text. I'll read it. For me, it works to read it a few times out loud uh, to get kind of the to sort out the grammar and, and, and what's being said and to kind of get a sense of the rhythm of, of the way the passage is written. And so what I'll do is I'll try to understand it as best as I can. Um, and uh, so that in seminary, this was what they, what they taught us, uh, was, the, we called it the 3 a.m. test, that I would understand the passage and what I was gonna preach to the point where if, you, if I was sound asleep and in a really creepy way you stood next to my bed and you shook me awake and said, What's the, passage, what's, what's the passage about this Sunday at 3 a.m.? I'd be able to tell you uh, in that moment. That's called the 3 a.m. test. So I try to get it locked into my head. This is what it's about at its heart. The second thing I do is I think about and pray about you. I think about my congregation, I think about our city, I think about the stories of people that I know in the room and what's happening in their lives. And I I never write a sermon, I promise you, this is an oath I will take before you right now, I will never write a sermon at an individual person in this room. I won't ever do that. Um, I've attempted that in the past, uh, and it just never goes the way you think it's going to. Um... So I won't do that, but I do think about you and I pray about you. I ask the Lord, okay, what do you want me to include? What do you want me to leave out? Because there's no time to say everything that could be said. Books could be written and have been written on this passage alone. So I think, what what do I say? What do they need to hear? And then the third thing that I do, so I try to understand it. I think about you. And then I begin the work of trying to craft a message that's clear that's memorable maybe, that's faithful to the passage, that's applicable to our lives. And sometimes that goes better than others, but, but then I, I, I eventually stand here and I deliver that message. So I think about the passage, I think about you, and then I, I think about the message. And what that involves, and this is kind of a homiletics thing, which is the art of preaching, is I think about explanation, illustration, application. right? What does the text say? How can I illustrate it? And then how does it apply to our lives? That's what I work on. And as a preacher, it's what I want for you. Like, I want to be modeling uh, how to work through a passage of the Bible so that when you're reading Scripture on your own, I, th- that part of what you're gleaning from me in the sermons is not just information, but is technique. Um, and so I'm constantly asking, what common knowledge do we share? What can I assume about your understanding of the passage so that we can kind of take that for granted and know that everybody kind of understands when I'm talking about the crucifixion, you know which crucifixion I'm talking about, right? One of the challenges with this for any preacher now is we live in a profoundly biblically illiterate age. I'm not insulting you but what I'm saying is, is this, because I don't really mean this as an insult at all. What I mean is very technically that, we, that a great many people today have never read the Bible, including a great many people who claim Christianity as their faith. So there's a great many people who have claimed Christianity as their belief system and have never read the source material, right? And so what happens is we glean our theology, our doctrine, our understanding from what we hear, from preachers, from what we hear now, from social media, from, from the negative things that we see playing out. If Christians are that, then it's certainly not that. It must be this. I'm gonna be this kind of Christian over here. Today's passage is one of those passages that assumes that we have a knowledge of the Old Testament. And without a basic grasp of the story of Abraham, this passage is very difficult to understand. And even with a knowledge of Abraham and the Old Testament, this passage is tricky to understand. In fact, John Stott, if you've ever heard his name, he's one of the leading Bible scholars of the last hundred years. He, he, uh, he said that this passage in Galatians is perhaps the most difficult passage in the book. Galatians is already, you know, it's not a lightweight, right? Like, Galatians is is heavy, and Stott says this one. This is the toughest passage in the book. And here's this explanation. He says this. He says, for one thing, it presupposes a knowledge of the Old Testament, which few people possess today. There are references here to Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, Mount Sinai, and Jerusalem. For another, the argument of Paul is a somewhat technical one. It's the kind which would have been familiar in Jewish rabbinical schools. It's allegorical, although not arbitrary. Nevertheless, the message of these verses is right up to date and is especially relevant to religious people, which brings me to my first point of application before I've even gotten into the passage itself, and that's this. It's so important for us to know our Bibles. If you want to understand scripture, know that scripture refers to other Scripture. Right, so it's important for us to understand our Bibles. The New Testament makes regular use of the Old Testament. Jesus quoted the Old Testament all the time. And the more familiar we are with the text of Scripture, the better we will understand the whole. Without knowledge of Scripture, how can we expect to grow in the truth of the gospel? And so my point of application is I really want to Encourage us all, make regular time with God's word part of your life. It's important. It's important. And we'll all be better for it. Um, So with that said, I want to dig into the passage itself. And I'm going to quote from John Stott. I'm borrowing a lot of John Stott today, uh, just so you know. Um, And I'm going to borrow his... his, I'm going to read you his summary of this passage, and then I'm going to just steal his outline. So... (laughs) The points will be, the, the explanation of the points will be my own, the headers, all John Stott. All right, here's, what, here's his summary of the passage, it's very clear, and I, I'm, I'm thankful for it. He says there are three stages in the argument of this paragraph. The first is historical, the second is allegorical, the third is personal. That's my outline, historical, allegorical, personal. In the historical verses, 22 and 23, Stott says, Paul reminds his readers that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael, the son of a slave, and Isaac, the son of a free woman. In the allegorical verses, 24 to 27, he argues that these two sons, with their mothers, represent two religions a religion of bondage, which is Judaism, and a religion of freedom, which is Christianity. In the personal verses, 28 to 31, he applies this allegory to us. If we are Christians, we are not like Ishmael, we're not slaves. Who like Isaac, we're free. And we remember that all of this book has been talking about not putting themselves back into slavery, but living as free people, as the full heirs of Christ. So, explanation, illustration, application, or if you like, historical, allegorical, personal. Let's start with the explanation, the historical account, uh, the background here of, of what's going on in this passage. Uh, so Abraham, when Abraham was living in a land called Ur, going by the name Abram, God appeared to him and told him to leave the land of his forefathers and to go to the land that the Lord would show him and that the Lord, the Lord that the land would give him. And without knowing where this land was exactly, Abraham believed and set out toward the land that the Lord promised to give him. That's where the term promised land comes from, right? It's the land the Lord promised to Abraham, promised land. Now, what the Lord promised to Abraham really kind of had four parts to it. The first was this promise of of land. And along with the land, the Lord swore that he would make Abraham into a great nation, okay? So he would be a great nation whose descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky, would outnumber the sand on the seashore, So land, great nation. The third thing is that through Abraham, God said all the nations of the earth would be blessed, which is a reference to the coming of Christ, that he would come from the line of Abraham. It's one of the earliest promises that God would send the Messiah to redeem and restore the world, and he'd come from Abraham. So land, great nation, all the nations, the other nations of the world would be blessed. And then the fourth part of this promise, which is vital, is that the Lord swore to take Abraham's people as his own and never let them go, ever. So he's gonna give them promised land, he's gonna make them into a great nation, all the nations of the earth are gonna be blessed through them, and God is never gonna let them go. There was a problem. And the problem was, Abraham and his wife Sarah were infertile they were unable to have children of their own. And by the time this promise is given, they're old. And so Sarah, practically minded as she was, suggested to Abraham in Genesis 16 that he should take her concubine, their servant, Hagar, and have a child through her as a way of bringing about some kind of heir for their family, because they had none. And Abraham, in what must have felt like not nearly enough time, agreed to this plan uh, to have this child with their servant Hagar as a way that they, could, that they could fulfill this promise that God made. Ah, it starts to get personal now, right? Because this is never how it works. It never works this way. We don't fulfill God's promises. He does. If I handed out a card and said, it's just a simple card, check yes or no. The question is, have you ever tried to fulfill a promise that really belonged to God? Most of the cards are gonna be checked yes and the rest of you are gonna be liars. (laughs) Right, but this is true. This is true. And so Abraham and Sarah conceived this plan And Hagar gives birth to a son named Ishmael. Hagar remains a slave. Ishmael is born as the son of a slave woman, therefore he is also a slave. And God chastised Abraham and Sarah for their lack of faith in his ability to keep his own promise. And the entire point of the promise was this, that God's chosen people would both begin and continue by grace alone. That's how this would happen. And so Paul's point with this historical reminder is that Abraham had two sons. One was born into slavery through the works of the flesh. The other was born into freedom by a work of the spirit. That other son was, of course, Isaac, who was miraculously given to them when the Lord opened Sarah's womb, when Abraham and Sarah were both very old and gave them this son. And to the Galatian believer, Paul is asking the question, which is the true child of promise that God made to Abraham? And then he's extending by asking the question, okay, so then which one are you? Which one are you? What are believers today? Are we children of slavery or are we children of freedom? Which leads us then into the allegory or the illustration that Paul is giving Paul tells us that he's using Abraham's story as an allegory. So that's a cue for us as readers to flip that switch and to say, okay, we're supposed to overlay this onto our own lives and see where we fit and how it works out. The two sons stand for two covenants, Paul tells us. There's the covenant of works and there's the covenant of grace. And these two covenants have two different mothers. And these two covenants reside in two different places. Hagar, the mother of the slave son, born by works of the flesh, for works of the flesh, was a slave herself. Sarah, the mother of the free son, born by a miracle of grace by the Holy Spirit, was a free woman. The present Jerusalem, Paul says, is the home to a covenant of works where religion is performed and is therefore a kind of slavery. Slavery. Is your religion a religion that is performed? The Jerusalem above, he says, is the kingdom of God, where Christ reigns at the right hand of the Father, and he calls his people into the eternal kingdom as full heirs with him. And Stott summarizes the allegory this way. He says, although superficially similar, because both were sons of Abraham, the two boys were fundamentally different. It's not enough to claim Abraham as our father, The crucial question concerns who our mother is. If it is Hagar, we are like Ishmael, we're enslaved. But if it is Sarah, we are like Isaac and we are free. And so Paul then turns this allegory to believers in Galatia. And he says, look, false teachers are trusting in fleshly identity, but true believers trust in the word of God according to the Holy Spirit. False teachers are persecutors, but they will be cast out. True believers are being persecuted, but they will be brought in to God's kingdom. And so we're children of promise. That's what Paul is saying here. We do not come to God by works of our flesh. We come to him by the promise, by his promise to take a people as his own that he will never leave, never forsake, no matter what. Children of the promise are true sons, therefore. We're those who are, (coughs) um, we're, we're true sons, those who are committed to receiving their salvation as a free gift. So what's the application then for this? So we've talked the historical part, the allegory. We can see kind of what what he's saying, right? But then he's laying this illustration at our feet and he's saying, you have in front of you continually people suggesting and pressuring and maybe even in your own heart pressuring yourself To try to earn God's favor through what you do, or to try to fit in to the work of God in the world by your efforts, by your ceremony, by your practice, all the things that we've been talking about in this series so far. And now he's getting into the application and he's saying, What does this mean for you? What does this mean for you? Because if we are like Isaac, one of the things Paul is saying in this passage is he's saying, you are embracing a doctrine that is offensive to people who are earning their salvation through their works. And therefore, you should expect persecution for that. That's what he's saying. Because part of the challenge for the Galatian believers is owning their faith and living their faith is not well received by Rome, right? They have a target on their backs, and persecution is a reality for them, and they're having to weigh the question in ways that Americans don't, is it worth it professing this faith if it means that my family might be arrested, that we might suffer persecution at the hands of Rome, at the hands of other religions? Here's the offense of the gospel. The offense of the gospel is that it does not count the efforts of people as worthy of salvation. So you can try your best, you can organize your life, you can go all in, you can be the most disciplined person in the room, and none of it will contribute to your salvation. We all fall short, and we all sin. If you are somebody who is building your life around living by performance, then that message of the gospel offends you, because what it's telling you is you're wasting your efforts, and so there's two things Paul is saying here by application. The first thing he's saying in the text is he's saying living as children, children of freedom, living as children of freedom will cost us here. Living as children of freedom will cost us here. It makes sense when you look at the message of the gospel that, some, that in some sense false teachers would come among the believers in Galatia and try to woo them away from the freedom that there is in Christ because it's an insult. The insult is that Christians are given what they do not earn, and they are adopted into freedom, which offends those who don't recognize this freedom, and instead are working to earn their eternal reward. And so Paul is saying, walk this road, and when persecution comes, do not be taken back by it, and do not be surprised by it, because the gospel offends those whose efforts and trust are in themselves, So living as children of freedom will cost us here. The second application that he's making is living as children of freedom promises an eternal inheritance. So it'll cost us here, but there's an eternal inheritance. True heirs of God are not children of physical descent. They never were. It never worked that way. They were born of God. They always have been. The Lord took a couple where both parties were past childbearing years, and he opened a barren womb, And gave Abraham and Sarah a son, saying, From this line will come my people. God is the one who works to establish and sustain his people. Persecution and inheritance. These are what true heirs of the kingdom can expect in this life. Paul says, now we live in a time that says, I even saw something on social media that says, you can know God's will for your life because it will be enveloped in peace. (laughs) to which my friend Kevin Twitt, if you know Kevin Twitt, (laughs) replied, do you think Jesus was feeling peace at the cross? Listen, this life, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We live in this tension of an already and a not yet. And so I just want to ask you the question, a series of questions. Where in your life are you trying to control God? This is your, I can't achieve what I want this way, maybe there's this other way I can do it, like Abraham and Hagar. Where in your life are you trying to control other people through religious activity? As a parent, I do that sometimes for my kids. I try to control them through my religious effort. Where are you putting more confidence and effort into works of your own flesh, rather than trusting in the grace and provision of Christ. This matters. It matters, and I want to show you why. It's something we've already seen, but I want to make this point. And that is to say this. Living according to the flesh is not a victimless crime. Living according to the flesh is not a victimless crime. When we look at the lives of those named in this passage, what we see behind them is a wake of relational carnage. Sarah, she's angry with Abraham for, in the first place, even believing this seemingly impossible promise and relocating the family on something that everybody knows this this is not how it works. Abraham takes Sarah's suggestion to try to achieve a son through his concubine Hagar, and then when Hagar conceives, she looks on Sarah with scorn and mocks her infertility. When Ishmael is born, Sarah hates both the boy and his mother, and he has them sent away into the wilderness to die. And Abraham is caught in the switches of his own sin, and everybody around him is suffering. Do you see it? Because I think when we try to do things according to our own flesh and we say, okay, I know God promised me this. I don't see how he's going to deliver it and he hasn't done it by now and so I'm gonna take matters into my own hands and I'm going to build a scheme and I'm gonna implement that scheme. One of the things you need is you need others in your life to cooperate with that scheme, right? What if they don't want to? What if they have a maturity in the Lord and they know this is not what you're supposed to do but they also regard you as the one who calls the shots on these kinds of things. What do you do then? If we're not trusting in the Lord and we're trying to force things through, it's not a victimless crime. People get caught in that and relationships suffer. When God tells us to live one way and we choose to live another, when we forsake obedience to his word and choose to navigate this world according to what our flesh wants, people get hurt. And our relationships turn adversarial our schemes compete with the needs of others. And we end up fighting for what we want rather than fighting for what is right. So much of the sanctification of learning to become, what, well, so much of sanctification is learning to become what we already are, right? There are certain promises that are spoken over us. As people whose faith is in Christ, Lord, the Lord says, you're adopted into my family. You are a full heir with Christ. Everything that's mine is yours. Forever. And that's already true. And yet, when we're still living this side of glory, there's a not yet component to that that we ache for and we long for. And that's so much of what this letter is about. False teachers are saying, if you truly want to be a child of God, here's what you have to do. And Paul is saying, because of Christ's redeeming work on your behalf, you've already been miraculously adopted into his family you're already full heirs with Christ. What does this mean for us? It means for the believer in Jesus, the worst possible outcome that we can face is eternity as full heirs with Jesus in face-to-face joyful intimacy with the one who made us and knows us and loves us as his own. That's the worst possible outcome. Already. We don't need to achieve this through works of the flesh. Patience can be hard. But we're also reminded here that to approach it through works of the flesh is going to fail anyway. And so, right now, when our faith is in Christ, the truth is we are free. We don't have to become slaves, we're free. Freedom is our mother, and we're heirs. And so my prayer for us is, one, that we would be students of Scripture because it holds together, and two, that we would live in this freedom, and that the Lord would give us the courage to do that every day. Let me pray. Father, the story of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah Used as an allegory in this passage is not an allegory. It's true. They're real people, and these things are things they really did. And Lord, we can certainly empathize with this couple wanting to have heirs, wanting to have descendants, wanting to um, see some kind of clarity. In this promise that the Lord made to them, that was shrouded in mystery, that was that had a a, uh, a ripening that had to happen uh, before it would it would it would come to pass. And uh, Lord, it can be so hard for us to wait on you for things that you promise you're going to do, and yet we 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 we, we want to see it now. We 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 need to see it now, Lord. Give us a patience that is born out of trust, trust in your goodness. Father, I pray that you would also give us, one, a discipline to uh, be in your word regularly and also a humility to acknowledge that we are all students uh, in the learning process when it comes to your word and that we would be slow to declare with absolute certainty things that are not absolutely clear uh, and that we would be quick to embrace things that you tell us in no uncertain terms and that you would give us a generosity of spirit (laughs) in interacting with other people who are also in process of learning to understand what it means to be a child of God. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ and his reconciling work on our behalf. We thank you that the gospel is true and that whether we feel it or not, that we lack nothing uh, because of your provision in our lives. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.